When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. We are, frankly, castrating young gay boys before they're ever going to have their first orgasm and putting lesbian girls on the path to mastectomy, to taking testosterone, having their voices break, growing beards... I just boggle again. And it's actually cheered on by the groups that were founded to support gay rights, like Stonewall. It's really, really, really upsetting. So I think we were all living in a fool's paradise. You know, we thought that homophobia had gone away, or at least that it just lurked in dark corners. I actually think that there's an awful lot more homophobia, including unrecognised homophobia. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Helen Joyce. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. This is the second time you've been on. Thanks so much. We love having you on, and I think it will be pretty obvious to listeners why we've got you back this week. It's because in relation to the issue that you have written and spoken about extensively over the past few years, which is the trans issue, a lot of stuff is happening. A lot of things seem to be shaking up. And even, you know, whisper it, some positive developments seem to be taking place in everything from the mistreatment of children who have gender dysphoria, right through to the right of women to express their gender critical views in the workplace. Interesting things are happening. And I want to dig into all that stuff with you during the course of this conversation. But I'll kick off with a broad question to get the ball rolling. I want to get a sense from you if it is your feeling that things are moving in a positive direction. Is the discussion finally being rested back to the plane of reason? Do you feel positive about how the trans discussion is going at the moment? I really do. I think, um, you know, several things have happened in just the last couple of weeks, or if I extended a little bit more the past month, that give me an immense amount of hope. And, um, you know, that, as you say, that includes two very important employment tribunal cases, mm-hmm. those of Maya Forstatter and Alison Bailey, and we can talk about those a bit more. Um, the fantastic news that the JIDS clinic at the Tavistock is to close. Now, what replaces it is, of course, up for grabs, but I'm assured behind the scenes that um, what replaces it will do better research, will be properly integrated with other mental health services and so on. And the Tavistock had become super ideological. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it could have been rescued. It needed closing. Really happy to see all the candidates, um, well, the two remaining candidates, but also Kemi Badenoch, who's yeah. wonderful, yeah. say really sensible and positive things about women's rights, sex-based rights. Um, and yeah, I think... Um, All in all, yes, good news in genderland, I would say. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about some of that good news. And let's start with the Tavistock issue. So you've mentioned there the Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic is to close following a pretty stinging report about its practices and its embrace of ideology, as you put it, and, and others have put it too, which I think is a very apt description As you say, we don't really know what's going to take its place. There is discussion about more local clinics opening, but there's also discussion about those having to adhere to higher levels of evidence and care and things that you would expect when it comes to the treatment of young people. But let's talk about how problematic that clinic had become and and what that reflects about the broader trans question. So your book, which we talked about the last time you were on the podcast, uh, which is a brilliant book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, really captured a lot of the problems with when you elevate ideology above truth, reason, and treating people in the way that they ought to be treated, especially if they present with gender dysphoria, if they're very young, if they're confused and so on. So give us an outline of what was going on, in your view, at a place like the Tavistock Clinic and why it was problematic that young people were being treated in the way that they were. So you've got to understand the Tavistock as a really a place that's kind of outside normal practices in healthcare and in particular normal practices for kids. 
it's not so much that it was a specialist service because services that are for very tiny numbers of people, so for example, cancer care for children, mm. those do tend to be gathered at one or two centres because that's the only way you can get the expertise. And the clinic at the Tavistock was the one for the whole of England. It had a satellite in Leeds, there's Sandyford in Scotland, and those do all the gender care. But the thing is that made them a sort of a ripe target for ideologues who have specific ideas about gender identity. So what I call gender identity ideology in my book is this notion that all of us have an innate sense of whether there were, were men or women or girls or boys or something else or something between, you know. And then um, that's the thing that makes you a boy or a girl not your sex, not your actual bo body. Mm. And those ideologues really targeted the Tavistock and that's the way it practiced its medicine. So it was working within a tradition more generally of like talk therapy, Jungian and, you know, influenced by Freud and all these ideas where you sit for 10 years and dig down into your psyche. And then kids were coming in and saying, you know, I like playing with trucks or I like wearing pink. And after like two sessions, they were putting small kids on puberty blockers or saying, yes, indeed, you must be a girl. And it kind of went completely bizarre. Mm. It turned out they weren't doing any research. They weren't even keeping track of their patients. They said they were doing a trial of puberty blockers. They weren't actually doing a trial. We had Kira Bell take a case to um, the for judicial review um, and it got overturned in the high court. But the evidence that came out in the initial hearing was just shocking. Like just people who immediately called little girls boys when the girls came in and said they were boys. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it was rescuable. And the, the reason that we've got this news is because I mean, after years of pressure from campaigners, the government decided to get a very eminent paediatrician, Dr. Hilary Cass, to look at more broadly what gender identity services should be for kids. And she brought out an interim report a while back that was really stinging about the Tavistock, like really hammered it for its poor practices, its lack of evidence and so on. And it's she who said that in effect, it's unrescuable. It needs to be closed. And the two great things about what she said, apart from the fact that the Tavi is to close, are one, that um, the two centres that are going to take over are going to do really good research. They're going to keep track of absolutely everybody. They're going to do proper trials, which have never been done anywhere on puberty blockers. They've never compared kids who get them and kids who don't. And they've been do using them worldwide since 1990s and they've still got no evidence base. Mm -hmm. And the other one is that it's going to be um, combined with other healthcare. So kids who turn up at the Tavistock, we know, have loads of other problems. Yes. Self-harm. Um, a lot of them are gay and have internalised homophobia. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them have autistic spectrum disorders. But once somebody says gender, that's all that anyone talks about. It's called diagnostic overshadowing, which is an expression I learned from Hilary Cass's report, and it's a great expression. Once there's gender, we talk about nothing else, and that's going to change. We're going to see these centres deal holistically with these kids. And I do have faith in Hilary Cass. I think her report shows she knows what's, what's what. Yeah, it, it's a really good report, very strongly put as well, and much needed. But you've just said something there that I think it's really worth pondering for a moment because it really does capture how out of control this had become, which is the point about puberty blockers and the fact that there have not been serious tests on puberty blockers and the consequences that they might have. That is extraordinary, isn't it? That such drugs would be given to children in almost an experimental way to see, does it work? Will it alleviate their gender confusions and their gender issues? with little regard for the impact it might have in terms of fertility, body development, mental wellness as well in relation to the radical transformation of a young person's body in an already difficult part of a young person's life. That's extraordinary. And it's worth really dwelling on that, isn't it? And the fact that there was almost an experimental approach to children who were going through a tough time. You know, it's worse than that. It wasn't even experimental. When you do an experiment, somebody is testing different <laughs> possibilities and tracking the outcomes. Yeah. These people had, you can only understand it if you realise that these clinicians started with an end point. Mm. If you believe that people have something that I think now as gender souls, and they sometimes get trapped inside the wrong body, and you find out that somebody has a gendered soul because they tell you, then everything else follows and it follows backwards. It's not, it can't, it's not just that it isn't evidence-based medicine, it's that it can't be evidence-based medicine. So 
One thing I genuinely don't understand, and I wish that there wasn't this no debate thing, because I would really love to ask one of these super ideological doctors or clinicians, like, why do you feel you need to reshape the body? Like if the words man and woman and boy and girl refer to anybody with anybody type, Mm -hmm. and it's transphobic, in fact, to look at some beautiful young woman like yourself, Brendan, who declares himself to be herself, I beg your pardon, (laughs) to be a woman, and to see anything wrong with that. Or for me to say that I'm a man and to see anything wrong with that, if that would be transphobic, then why on earth are we changing people's bodies? Yeah. Like if they're older and they want to change their body, you could say, well, it's autonomy. But we're not talking about older people. We're talking about children. Yeah. And the, and the things that we're doing, you know, let's not forget puberty is the second most important developmental sprint of a child's life after the first year or so. Everything changes. If you can remember your own puberty... It's not just that you, you know, grew facial hair and sprouted upwards and things mm-hmm. like that and started to feel sexual attraction. It's everything in your brain, mm-hmm. your independence. It's the start of breaking away from your own family. You know, to interrupt that strikes me as, you know, beyond risky, like the sort of thing that you would only do if the child in front of you might die otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's the final thing I'd say. There's this awful suicide narrative that the ideologues peddle, which is that if you don't give these children the medicines they ask for, it's, you know, it's suicide or transition. They have this awful catchphrase, which is, would you prefer a dead daughter or a live son? And then, you know, if it's, if it's going to save a child's life, okay, would you argue about the fact that this child is going to be sterile, is probably never going to have an orgasm, will have great difficulty forming stable relationships, may have brain problems, may have bone problems, all of those things. You would do those things if you thought the child might die. Now, there's no evidence whatsoever. In fact, I worry about some of the kids who've been transitioned wrongly. Yeah. I think they're the ones I'm worried about in the future. That's very well put. And I think the use of the uh, spectre of suicide has become this repugnant form of moral blackmail, essentially, which is the exploitation of the problem of suicide in order to pursue the ideological goal of having more transitions or recognizing that someone's body might need to be amended to be in keeping with their so-called gendered soul. And anyone who's ever read the Samaritan's guidelines on suicide knows that you are not supposed to do that kind of thing. Uh, journalists are uh, expected to adhere to those guidelines in particular, but th- those rules or those guidelines are broken all the time by trans activists and trans allies. It's really, really questionable. In relation to something you said earlier about the Tavistock Clinic and the young people who are presenting there, which over the past few years has been a really huge number of girls in particular, an exponential rise in the number of girls who, for some reason to do with social contagion and maybe a a culture of misogyny, seem to not to want to be girls or seem to think there's a real problem with being girls. You mentioned that some of these young people are gay or will become gay as they grow up. Did you ever think we would be in the situation in the early 21st century where young gay people, and a large number of them are, would be medically treated, medically interfered with in order to correct them? I mean, it's like something out of a nightmare uh, dystopian scenario that young gay kids would be put through that kind of process. And there's an element there uh, of homophobia or or some problematization of being a young gay person, which needs to be corrected through medical intervention. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? You've just given me a full body shiver talking through that. And I mean, it's not something I haven't thought before, but just every time I face it so starkly again, not just that we are frankly castrating Mm -hmm. young gay boys before they're ever going to have their first orgasm. Yeah. And, you know, putting lesbian girls on the path to mastectomy, to taking testosterone, having their voices break, growing beards. I, I just boggle again. It's it's hard. And, and then and it's actually cheered on yeah. by the groups that were founded to support gay rights, like Stonewall. Yeah. It's really, really, really upsetting. So I think we were all living in a fool's paradise. You know, we thought that homophobia had gone away. Yeah or at least that it just lurked in dark corners. I actually think that there's an awful lot more homophobia, including unrecognised homophobia. So one of the things that you can see if you have the stomach for it is there are a couple of videos that you can watch of mothers talking about notably effeminate little boys, their sons. One of them is Susie Green, who is the um, CEO of transgender um, charity Mermaids. 
And another is a woman called, I forget her first name, but the surname is Shapley and she's American, a Texan woman. And in both cases, they've given videos in which they describe why they thought their sons, why their sons were really girls. And in both cases, they say that their starting point was that probably this little boy is going to grow up gay. Mm. And in Susie Green's case, it was her husband who had a problem with that rather than herself. And in the Shapley's case, they're evangelical Christians and they had a big problem with it. And they describe completely openly how they would beat the boy if he tried to play with girls' toys and how they were embarrassed that people in their church would say to them, is your son going to grow up gay? This is when the boy was two. He was two. Mm. By the time they were, he was four, they had transitioned him. So I think that when you look at these parents, you're seeing people who maybe they haven't consciously thought it, but they do know their son is likely to grow up gay. And they don't like that. They don't like the idea that their son might come back home with, you know, some leather biker or something like that, mm. and that he's going to be on the scene and that maybe that one day they'll be attending a wedding with two men. They don't like it. And I don't know how much they think through what they're doing, but what they are doing, it's just the most shocking thing. And I do fully believe that it will be recognised as a massive medical scandal, perhaps the biggest medical scandal of the 21st century at some point, not too far away, I hope. I hope so too. And uh, I've always thought that it is not a coincidence at all that Iran has one of the highest levels of uh, transgender operations because it is a virulently homophobic society in which it is preferable to mutilate a young man rather than allow him to be a practicing homosexual. So there are lots of operations in Iran with the sanction of the state in Iran, which uh, transform gay young men into supposed women. And uh, the fact that that's now being mirrored in some of the practices taking place in the West is really quite shocking. And that it's praised here by campaigners. So Pink News and Stonewall, Pink News ran an article once, this is a, a rag, that publishes nonsense about all sorts of things, but in particular claims to represent gay people. It doesn't really, it's just the trans agenda. And they published a piece in which they praised Iran and Pakistan yeah. for their forward-looking yeah. attitude to trans people. It's not just that they sanction these operations, it's that they pay for them and they sometimes force young gay men into them. It's that or, you know, the other things that they do to gay men, which are stoning, hanging, imprisoning, beating, so, you know, you can get castrated or we'll kill you. Yeah. Fantastic offer. Really super progressive. Yeah. Well done. Did you know that learning has been shown to improve your mood? With the brilliant shows, documentaries and series available on Wondrium, learning really doesn't have to be something formal like enrolling in a course or studying. Learning can be something we do on our own terms and it can be fun. I know that I feel great after learning something new, and on Wondrium it is just so easy. Wondrium is the educational platform that helps us all become better versions of ourselves. For instance, have you ever thought about the ancient origins of some everyday activities? That's what the new Wondrium series, Great Board Games of the Ancient World, brilliantly explores. Did you know that backgammon was played by British and French troops passing the time during the Crusades in the Middle Ages? Or how an ancient Indian game developed into chess in the West, but may also have been a distant relative of the popular game of shogi in Japan. This show is just one of many eye-opening series available on Wondrium. Wondrium has unlimited access to thousands of hours of content covering any topic you can imagine. This includes audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and much more. All of it is presented by top professors and experts, but there is no pressure of homework or grades. I know that you will benefit from Wondrium too, and I want you to sign up today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free month of unlimited access. To get this offer, you need to visit my special URL, wondrium.com slash Brendan. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. It's genuinely depressing that after the past 50 or 60 years of enormous positive leaps forward for gay rights, we've ended up in a situation, as you've just described, where young gay men are essentially being chemically castrated at the very least, and young lesbians are being transformed into 
fake men. And, and uh, you know, the, the, if you read some of the stories, particularly from the parents who've lost their children to this cult, you will often read about uh, young women who come home from their first term at university. They've got facial hair. Their voices have deepened. They may have changed their name. They uh, Their mannerisms have certainly changed. And all of that, doesn't that all, I, I wanted to ask you in relation to that aspect of it, how much you think this is a social contagion and how you think that plays itself out or how that works. Because there is something quite extraordinary, isn't there, about the growing numbers of young people who are going through this and the unwillingness of the people who should be looking out for young people's health to call it out, to question it, to put up the stop sign and say, look, we think there's a social contagion element here and maybe we should press pause before we take further action. How do you think these things take off in the way that they do in terms of encouraging more young people to go down this pretty reckless route? I suppose these things often start with the best of intentions. You know, it's it's a bit like the mental health thing. Now, children's mental health has never been worse. I mean, I want to say that that's despite all the talk about mental health right. and all the lessons about mental health, but I don't think it is despite. I think it's partly because. Yeah. So a friend of mine was telling me about her daughter, who's in her first year of secondary school, who's a lovely girl and really, really doing great, very happy child. And they've recently had some mental health lessons where they're all given these sort of checklist thing. And you're meant to be constantly looking at it and deciding how happy are you or not. And it's not just happiness, it's things like, are you hydrated? Have you had some exercise? How are you feeling? And this poor girl says to her mum, you know, I feel much worse. This makes me feel worse. So it's a sort yeah. of a toxic individualism, a toxic sort of hyper or distorted liberalism where all the focus is inwards on yourself. I mean, I, I'm old enough and was brought up in Catholic Ireland. You know, if I said that I was miserable or bored or something like that, I was told to go and do something nice for someone else. Mm-hmm. Don't be thinking so much about me. Mm-hmm. But that's actually very good mental health advice. So these children are told that the most important thing about them, the defining thing about them is their identity. And they're also taught these idiotic lessons that I wish the Department for Education would get control of. Would you believe, Brendan, that they have a list of approved providers for teaching phonics, but no list of approved providers for teaching RSE or PSHE? So any bloody Tom, Dick or Harry can set up and teach nonsense about how sex is a spectrum and there's no such thing as male and female and that it's bigotry to say there is. And then they go into schools. And of course, teachers have been rightly don't want bullying, rightly want to be, you know, inclusive and diverse and all of those things that you do have to be in a modern British classroom. You know, you've got really very varied people in front of you. It's not a monolithic country anymore. So they think it's the right thing to do. They think this is just the extension of stopping homophobic bullying, stopping racist bullying. The next thing is to tell children that there's no such thing as boy or girl or that boy or girl is what you feel instead of what you are. And they don't notice somehow that that's the opposite of progressive. Yeah. Like progressive is saying, yeah. you're a girl, that can't change. Do what you like. Yeah. Don't let it stop you. Girls can go to the moon. Girls can be president. Girls can do anything. Yeah. And vice versa, of course, for boys. And if the boy says he wants to wear pink dresses, let him wear his bloody pink dress. Who cares? It's totally unimportant. But then to say that makes him a girl is the opposite of progressive. Yeah. So yeah, there's a massive social contagion element to it. And it happens on social media platforms, of course. Tumblr was the worst. And now TikTok has hugely taken over for it, from it. There's all these mad videos of teachers talking about coming out as non-binary to their nursery kids. And, you know, and they're saying, amazingly, 15 kids have come out as non-binary now in my class. Aren't I wonderful? Oh, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so social contagion and a sort of a totally misdirected desire to help people but doing it in ways that harm because of this incredible hyper-focus on the individual instead of the society outside. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree that there, it is utterly regressive, this notion that if a boy likes dolls and wearing pink, then he must be a girl. We have to force him hormonally or socially into that box and and vice versa. It's It's incredibly regressive in terms of all the kinds of discussions we've been having about sexual equality and the right of people to break out of the gender stranglehold over the past 50 or 60 years, right from Betty Friedan onwards. And we seem to be making a backward step on all of that stuff. Just to dwell for a moment more on the negative side before we move on to what's changing, um, I want to ask you about how the Tavistock could 
keep on doing the things that you've just described very well and which the CAS report highlights as being problematic for, for such a long period of time? Because it seems to me, I mean, there are the obvious reasons, which is that there were lots of ideologues there and it had become an ideological exercise more than a clinical one. And there were lots of problems internally and uh, and so on. But one of the issues, I think, which is something that you have direct experience of, is the explicit curtailment of open, free discussion about the trans issue. So whistleblowers from the Tavistock Clinic were often demonized and sometimes referred to as transphobic. And uh, there will have been others who felt they couldn't speak out because they didn't want to subject themselves to that kind of abuse. There are women like you who've really been putting your head above the parapet over the past few years who are subjected to the most extraordinary abuse. You were recently referred to as a Nazi. There are rape threats. There are death threats. J.K. Rowling has experienced lots of this as well. Isn't there a relationship, a direct relationship, I would argue, between, I guess we could call it cancel culture or the clamping down on free discussion about this problem and the fact that it could continue having a destructive impact on young people's lives. So it really highlights the dangers, doesn't it, of restricting debate about new developments in society. Absolutely. You know, if you look back at the history of medicine, there have been a lot of scandals in medicine. And it often takes a long time for whistleblowers to get through because even before modern day cancel culture, it's never very easy to talk up about the guy in charge. Yeah. So, I mean, famously, the guy who invented the lobotomy got a Nobel Prize for it. And, you know, I, I have read some history of that and earlier scandals. Like, I don't know what it is about doctors, but there seems to be this tendency of theirs to settle on women's reproductive systems as the thing that's wrong with them. Mm. So right back in the 19th century, when women came in, you know, if they were just miserable or if they were depressed or whatever, the doctor would sort of go, aha, it must be her uterus. <laughs> <laughs> would just remove her ovaries or, you know, her uterus as well. And extraordinary. So, so there's this long history of doctors, in particular with sort of amorphous, mental, um, hard to describe shifting conditions, which gender dysphoria very much is, to settle on a physiological cause yeah. and to settle that physiological cause on the sex organs and particularly for women. So that history is there. And when it happens, it takes a while. It often takes the guy whose idea it was dying before you manage to stop it. So there's a famous French doctor called Charcot who basically invented the notion of hysteria and he coached his patients in hysteria and they would have these massive fits. And when he died, they stopped. Right. So, you know, that happens and we're just seeing it again. We've just seen another sociomedical contagion. And you know, it's it's not just driven. What's new is that it's not just driven by the medical profession, it's driven online as well. Yeah. And then that brings us to our current sociological moment, which as you say, is one that's incredibly, incredibly authoritarian on the sort of speech front. And and I think it's sort of it's it's the flip side of the internet. Like anyone can say anything, but also anyone can stop you from saying anything. Like any, you know, the, the tech companies, I can never say what I actually want to say on yeah, social media. That's right. Like somebody says to me, why do you think Leah Thomas shouldn't be in women's sports? And I want to say, because Leah Thomas is a man. Yeah. But if I say that, I lose my Twitter account. Yeah. And that's why they ask me, of course, they're trying to bait me. So yeah, we have this simultaneous, nobody's ever spoken as much, but also they can just land on you like a ton of bricks, thousands of them, and they're flying monkeys calling you a Nazi and trying to get you banned. And, you know, maybe approaching your employer, which is what happened to Alison Bailey, and we'll come on to that, I'm sure, like literally people complaining to your employer about you. And yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I can say that all of that is like how it happened, but I guess the experience of living through it has taught me that I didn't understand until now really fully how important free speech was. Mm. Like I thought I cared about free speech, but I think I always thought about how unpleasant it feels to be silenced. Mm. And I can tell you it does. It feels very unpleasant. You feel like you're throttling and choking. But that's not the bit that matters. The bit that matters is that it's by talking that we make new knowledge and that we get to a better understanding. So, I mean, oh, there was this um, meant to be a, a sort of a full day conference run by Great Ormond Street Trust, which is another of the um, big London hospitals alongside the Tavistock. And it was meant to be a full day on gender stuff a few months ago. And it was people from right across the spectrum, people, you know, who absolutely believe in gender stuff and people like me who criticize it. 
Well, first of all, all the genderists refused to come. And then they started complaining and writing messages about how we were transphobes and Nazis and bigots and so on. And then they escalated it to the Health Education England and to the government. And the day before the event, it was cancelled. And um, you know, I was dropped from it before it was cancelled. I, I, myself and Stephanie Davies R.I., who's from Transgender Trend, who's the woman who more than anyone else, along with Kira Bell, yeah. has stopped the scandal at the Tavistock. Yeah. The two of us were dropped from it because of complaints from other people, you know, from, from ideologues, basically. Well, look, that's the sort of thing that has meant this scandal has continued. And I got loads of messages from psychiatrists psychi- and, and trainee psychiatrists saying, oh, God, I'd really wanted to go to that one. I don't normally go to these training events, but I really wanted to go to that one. Because they want to know what's going on too. But yes, that's the silencing, you know? Yeah. And that's what it ma- why it matters. You know, children are being sterilized because people like me have not been allowed to speak. Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, exactly right. And it really has highlighted the dangers of censorship. And the great thing about freedom of speech is that Firstly, you get to express yourself, which is always a good thing. And other people get to listen to you and make up their own minds about whether they agree or disagree. So it improves the independence of the audience as well as the speaker. But also it allows us to think critically, to shine a light on things that we think are going wrong or or which are causing problems. And the more that that is restricted, then the more society is pushed into darker and darker corners. And without that light, without the sun, the disinfectant of sunlight, as as freedom of speech is sometimes referred to. So I think that's that's really important. And one of the things, before we move on to the case of the heroic Alison Bailey and and Maya Fostarter as well, um, I wanted to ask you one more thing on in relation to the silencing process, because one you, you mentioned there a discussion you were meant to take part in, which was called off. And this kind of thing is happening fairly regularly to women like you and gender critical women. Another discussion you were supposed to take part in was with Grace Lavery. And I wanted to ask you about why you think people like Grace Lavery pull out of these discussions. I reviewed Grace Lavery's book on Spike, and it was one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. And I don't mean that in a positive sense at all. It was incredibly misogynistic in my view. It had language and ideas and pornographic images. Do you think there's a there comes a point where the trans lobby or trans allies have some possibly deep-rooted recognition that their ideology is quite easily exposed and quite easily challenged and therefore they back off from discussion? Or is it simply that they just don't want to hear from women and they think you, Helen Joyce, should be in the kitchen making dinner rather than on a public platform expressing your intellectual ideas? What do you think drives that kind of, uh, that that desire to shut women down if they raise questions yeah. about this issue? So I should add one more thing about the um, the Great Ormond Street debacle, which is that, you know, there are people who listen to this conversation I'm having with you and to other conversations I've had with other people who are willing to talk to me and they say, oh yeah, silenced. She's really silenced. Yeah. She's done on loads of podcasts. <laughs> she got her book out. It was in the top 10 bestsellers last year, you know, in the Times list and so on. They have have no idea what has happened behind the scenes. Yeah. I turned up and recorded a whole one hour program. And then I waited for weeks until they were going to put it out. And then I got this stupid email saying uh, production difficulties. It was in the damn studio. There were no production difficulties. <laughs> I did a full recording for Australian broadcasting um, and they said the same thing the next day. Sorry, there were production difficulties. Sky News has done this to me. The BBC would have done it to me, except they've never invited me on. And then the important thing about the Great Ormond Street one is that that's who the psychiatrists are listening to. I mean, they may or may not be listening to this, but what they need is their actual conference. They need their yes. conti- their CPD, their continuing professional development to include this. So it's no good to them that you and I are talking. They need their blooming professional bodies to do this. Yeah. So yes, I have been silenced. And the fact that I managed to get out sometimes because of people like you who care about free speech doesn't mean I haven't been silenced. Right. Grace bloody lavery. Okay. I don't think Grace ever intended to have that event. From my point of view, what happened was um, Lavery tweeted. Now, I don't follow Lavery and I actually had Lavery muted for very good reason because I find the things that Lavery tweets disgusting. But then somebody I follow screen captured and retweeted into my timeline um, saying, and what what, what Lavery was saying was that he, he was coming to Britain to do a book launch and um, none of us, myself, Julie Bindell, Kathleen Stock, whoever, none of us were willing to talk. And so I actually got confused and thought it was a different trans woman, Katie Montgomery, to whom I had before said, yes, I would talk, but Katie always backs out. 
And so I tweeted, sitting on the tarmac in Dublin airport, waiting to come back from my parents, really crossly. I tweeted, you know I'm willing to, of course. <laughs> Went to airplane mode and landed to find out that I'd accidentally arranged to have a debate <laughs> with bloody Grace Lavery, thinking it was somebody else. And I knew that Grace was never serious. Mm. I would say that Grace doesn't just identify as a woman. Grace identifies as a messy bitch. It's a style, it's a whole chaos machine thing, enjoying, you know, being subversive, thinking it's fun and fascinating to be subversive, liking stringing other people along. There was a whole load of stupid behind the scenes stuff, you know, Grace wanted me to be organising everybody's diary and I just flatly refused. I used to work in events organising and the speakers don't, don't organise the dates. Speakers give their contact details to the yeah. host and the host organise the dates. So that was the first thing Grace wanted to do, waste my time running around acting like a bloody secretary. And um, I, I did say to um, Unheard, who kindly offered to host, look, I don't think this is going to go ahead. So I'm really sorry about that. But they were willing to take the risk because they would be very interesting. And it would be a first, like we don't normally have these events. Yeah. And I did keep saying, look, I, I believe it when I see it. And then Grace tried to make me cancel by um, calling me a Nazi, calling Unheard Nazis. I'm used to it. I think Unheard were genuinely offended. Just, just all sorts of bullshit. But as I say, I have Grace muted. So... You know, and then anyway, he had to pull out because and he made up some absolute nonsense and got a friend to send it. It was just messy bitch stuff. It was just yeah. not just identifying as a woman, but identifying as a really unpleasant teenage girl. Yeah. Now, why you would do that, I don't know. Yeah. I was a teenage girl once. I hope I wasn't ever like that. I don't feel any need to go back to that time where everybody's just drama, drama, drama. Yeah. But anyway, that's Grace. Yes, absolutely. That is Grace. And, and they are strange people, if I'm allowed to say that. And I don't mean all people who think they are trans. No, I the, mean, the high profile ones are very strange. It's strange a very people. strange thing to do to put on this yeah. weird, distorted, performative, yeah. pretending to be a woman or pretending to pretend to be a woman almost in yeah. the case of Grace. Yeah. Like it's not a very convincing impression and I don't give the get the feeling it's intended even to be yeah. terribly convincing. Yeah. It's I just agree. some weird performance art. Hi, it's Fraser here, deputy editor of Spiked. There are some things you just wouldn't risk doing, like leaving your laptop on a coffee shop table while you nip off to the loo. But that's just like what you're doing if you're using the internet without the protection of ExpressVPN. And I'm not exaggerating. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, say in a cafe, a hotel, an airport, on a train, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your data. And they can steal exactly the kind of things that you want to protect, like passwords, financial details, or anything valuable. And did you know that all it takes is just some cheap hardware? Even a clever 12-year-old could do it. And all of that data, well, as you may imagine, it's pretty valuable. Hackers can make a lot of money selling your information on the dark web. But ExpressVPN ensures that can't happen. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. That means hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's so secure that it'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Not only that, it's super easy to use. You just fire up the app and click one button to get protected. And whatever devices you're using, ExpressVPN almost certainly works on it. You can use it on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. And on top of all that, it's just so incredibly fast. I can do all the things I normally do on the internet with ExpressVPN, and I don't even notice it's there. With all that added peace of mind, having ExpressVPN really is a no-brainer. So, secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash brendan. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Brendan. And you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan. Okay, so let's move on from men who behave badly and who are cowards. And let's move on to women who are doing really important things. And I want to ask you about one in particular or, or about what this one woman represents in terms of a pushback against the boss classes clampdown on the right of women to express themselves in public, to put it in old style Marxist terms. So Alison Bailey um, took her 
people will have, have seen stuff about this case in news reports. Alison Bailey, who is a black lesbian and a barrister and uh, one of the founders of LGB Alliance, which is an incredibly important organization. And as far as I can tell, the only organization in the UK that represents lesbian, gay and bisexual people exclusively and, and quite importantly. She took her chambers uh, to an employment tribunal for discrimination in relation to her persecution, I would put it, in, in terms of what happened online and, and also in her workplace over her views, which the vast majority of people, I think, probably share, which is that yeah. sex is immutable, there are men and women, and one cannot become the other. And it's quite important that women have rights, and it's quite important that lesbians have rights too. I think those are views that most people would share. And she was uh, partially successful in relation to taking her chambers to task. She was slightly less successful in terms of uh, taking Stonewall to task for uh, being responsible for how she was treated, but we can talk about that. How do you see the Alison Bailey case in terms of its importance in throwing open this discussion and creating a new dynamic where people feel capable of expressing themselves? So I think I'd pair it with Maya Forstatter's case because yeah. they were both at the employment tribunal and they're related. The thing is that once you say something like the earth is flat or there is no such thing as binary sex, you, you might think that you can just say that in one part of the world, but it actually has implications for other parts, maybe not the ones you intended. So I think that the people who talk about gender identity and say that we're all who we are because of our gender identities are mostly trying to be kind. They don't realise that it's going to have an impact on those of us who are not confused about our sex or do not feel uncomfortable with our sex. They think they're doing it just for the people who are uncomfortable or, unconfused, or, or, or confused. And they don't notice that what they do ripples through a whole system of societal rules and norms and laws um, and practices that do on occasion divide the sexes. So we don't need to divide the sexes often, but when we do, we actually really need to. And it's mostly for women that we need to. Mm. You know, men can, I think lots of men wouldn't actually particularly like women in their changing rooms or watching them while they're using a urinal, yeah. but they're not in danger and it's yeah. not humiliating and it doesn't tend to cause sex crime. Other way around, much more serious. And once you say that you're going to allow any male person into female spaces, where do you draw the line? For a start, it's not okay. That man isn't okay, even if he calls himself a woman. But secondly, how do you know that another man is sincere in saying he feels like a woman? You can't tell. So Maya started to talk about these things in 2018, 2019, and she lost her job. Mm -hmm. And she's just completed a three-year three and a bit year process of being dragged through employment tribunals. Well, she took the case, but anyway, she lost in the first instance. She won at appeal, which set a precedent and established the extraordinary, I still can't believe I need to say this, the fact that believing that there are two sexes and that sometimes <laughs> this matters, that's Radical. now a protected belief yeah. in British law. Like it's obviously also true, but it's yeah. a protected belief. And then very recently she had her final hearing, which concluded that yes, indeed, she was discriminated against on the basis of her beliefs and she's now due compensation. So Alison's case had some similar elements to it, um, but Alison is lesbian. And um, in the process of being one of the people who set up the LGB Alliance, she took aim at Stonewall, which is meant to represent LGB people's interests. But once you say that men can be women and women can be men, you can no longer defend same-sex attraction because the sexes become mixed-sex groups. And the group that that affects the most is lesbians. Women don't tend to be in a position to bully gay men into sleeping with them if they identify as men. The other way around really does happen. Yeah. And Alison in particular tweeted about this hideous workshop called the Cotton Ceiling Workshop. That's a decade ago now in Canada. So the cotton ceiling is this grotesque analogy with the glass ceiling, which is this barrier that keeps women down in the workplace. So men are above it and women are below it. Well, the cotton ceiling is a lesbian's knickers. Mm. And the prejudice is the lesbian keeping the trans woman out of her private parts. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I, I feel dirty even mm. telling you this, but I didn't make it up. Anyway, Alison tweeted that this was coercive. And Stonewall's head of trans inclusion, who's a trans man called Kieran Metcalf, wrote this extraordinary letter to Garden Court, her chambers, saying that it would be very hard for Stonewall to continue in its association with Garden Court if Alison was allowed to stay there, that Alison would be dangerous, that she would harm trans people who turned up to the chambers. 
Now, I listened to a lot of the hearing and really it was five weeks of, of just sometimes drama, sometimes humour, often idiocy. Um, you know, Medcalf said, among other things, that um, there is no such thing as sex, that our sex changes during our lifetimes, that trans women are not male, they're female, that any woman who complains about having male-bodied people coming into their spaces has to be a bigot, that there is no such thing as male-bodied, you know, just just insanity. Anyway, so um, Garden Court investigated Alison, mm. partly at Stonewall's uh, behest, but just also independently because of this tweet and a few others. And it sanctioned her on them too. It said that they didn't reach the standards that a barrister is meant to reach and that she should take them down, although she did not take them down. So she took them to court for a variety of things. I think sex discrimination, anti-lesbian discrimination and belief discrimination, but I may not have that quite right. I'm not a lawyer. And she won against Garden Court on the central claim, which was that it had discriminated against her and she'd been victimised. Now, she didn't get much in the way of um, money for lost earnings because she wasn't able to establish there were met much, there was much in the way of lost earnings, but she got aggravated damages, which you hardly ever get in an employment tribunal. Yeah. And it only happens when your employer is a total tosspot. Yeah. <laughs> and then she also claimed that Stonewall had basically, that they were the reason that they had incited Garden Court to, done all, to do all of this, but that's a really high legal bar. Yeah. So basically it's as if garden court was say you and you had said to a friend what will I do tonight and your friend said go out and smash some windows and then when the police arrest you you say oh he told me to do it yes. I think they arrest you not your friend you're the idiot who did what you were told yeah. so garden court were found the, the the reason for it but they did what Stonewall told them and that was illegal discrimination so the fact that Stonewall got off and it's talking about like this, like it's some immense victory. This is a charity that hundreds and hundreds of employers all over the country, government departments, police departments, hospital trusts, all sorts, schools, sign up, pay them for money, pay them money for advice about diversity, equity and inclusion. And we've seen in a court case that that advice gets you sued and you lose if you follow it. Yeah. Well, woohoo, Stonewall didn't have to pay up the employer had to pay up. Like that is the most ringing endorsement I've ever heard of a consultant in my <laughs> life. Get Pay us, we'll tell you what to do. And then when you're taken to court, we'll get off scot-free and you're left carrying the can. Absolutely. That's a very good outline of what happened. And just on the point about the cotton ceiling, I mean, to my mind, it's one of the most misogynistic ideas of contemporary times. I mean, the notion, because of course, the glass ceiling, this uh, the idea that women are kept to a certain level in the workplace and one needs to smash the glass ceiling in order that women can move forward. If you take that to the idea of the cotton ceiling, basically what it says is if you smash the cotton ceiling, it means lesbians have to drop their knickers for men who claim to be women. And one of the homophobic ideas of the 70s and 80s, and I remember hearing it as a kid even, is that the problem with lesbians is they just needed a good seeing to. That was often yeah. what was said about women who loved women, is that, that you know, they were just led astray. They, there was something wrong with them. If they had a good seeing to, they'd be fine. And the cotton ceiling rehabilitates that idea in supposedly woke language and essentially says there is something wrong with these women if they refuse to allow male-bodied people into their private parts, into their knickers, into their bedrooms. Isn't it disgusting? It's absolutely I, mean, I don't know about you, but I'm crossing repulsive. my legs as you're saying this because it just disgusts me so much. It is is genuinely repulsive. And the fact that Alison Bailey took a stand against that kind of anti-lesbian bigotry and misogyny is something that I think is incredibly important and obviously progressive in contrast with Yes. The trans lobby and allies who attacked her, who are incredibly regressive. There's a word for what they're saying, and it's conversion therapy. Yeah. yeah. And as I say, I listened to a lot of the testimony, and Catherine McGahey, who is this woman who had been at the Bar Standards Board, came in and gave the most extraordinary testimony in which she literally compared lesbians who wouldn't consider sleeping with trans women to white South Africans who objected to the end of apartheid. Like wow. she brought that up. Alison's barrister didn't. She, and she kept coming back to it too. Huh. She kept saying, you know, um, truth and reconciliation. Absolutely. Wow. And she kept comparing it to the glass ceiling as well. And I realised when I listened to her, and this is a very much a, a thing of our times, she didn't see discrimination, Catherine McGahey, anymore as, you know, a privileged group knocking an, a less privileged group. Because if you do that, you can't really see trans women as less privileged because they're men. Yeah. So it's clear that the men who are trying to get into lesbians' knickers are the privileged group mm. and the lesbians are the less privileged group. But if you kind of abstract 
discrimination into this free floating thing, like sort of matrix that's in the air and we all slot into it. And this is the whole intersectionality framework as it's been distorted. Then you can kind of think discrimination is both sides issue. So that was, that was what Catherine McGahey was trying to say. She was saying like, you know, it wasn't that Nelson Mandela went on and on about how bad white people was. It's that he tried to bring the nation together. So the, the cotton ceiling index, um, the cotton ceiling workshop was about bringing lesbians and trans women together and it, neglecting the fact that that means a man putting his penis inside the vagina of a woman who isn't interested in such a thing. And I'm not lesbian, but I still feel sick yeah. when I think about this. Yeah. It is absolutely gross. And even for people to talk about Mandela or apartheid in South Ooh. Africa in the same breath as men who want to have sex with lesbians and want to pressure them to have sex is just simply extraordinary and really tells us how much the trans lobby and those who support them have completely lost their moral way. It really is quite They've extraordinary. They've lost touch with reality. They, yeah. They're in a different universe where words are real and reality isn't real. And where everything is just vast forces and there's no actual people doing things. And you can just change the meaning of the words if you want to make the world a better place. These are people I have no common ground with. Yeah. And of course, then, you know, the silencing thing means that we have lost our common ground. You know, I'm talking to you and you agree with me and both of us think it's gross. Who's Catherine McGahey talking to? Yeah. Presumably other people who think that Alison Bailey is like, you know, Afrikaners rampaging around South Africa on trucks with their guns trying to pick off black people or something. It's absolutely incredible. Like she has to have been in a bubble of monumental proportions yeah. for many years yeah. to end up in the place that she could talk like that. I often think about the kind of millennials and Generation Z and when they were growing up and reading their radical texts and getting involved in radical politics. I often think, did they ever think they would be in a position where they would be waging a moral war against a black lesbian for standing up for lesbian rights. I mean, it is such an extraordinary situation. They just don't see her like that. And I think that's, you know, back to your thing about free speech being so important. I think part of the reason for it is to hear the ideas that you're not hearing inside your own bubble. I mean, it's been very good for me, I must say, yeah. um, talking to all sorts of different people who have different opinions on absolutely everything like religion, Brexit, you know, politics and so on. Loads of people saying things that I'd never thought of, but they're not listening because we're not allowed to talk to them. And if we do talk, they they just stick their fingers in their ears and say, la, la, la. Absolutely. Okay, Helen, a couple more questions. Firstly, just sticking with a Stonewall thing for a moment, I want to ask you how serious this problem has become. I think you outlined very well there the fact that even though, the fact that Stonewall is presenting the Alison Bailey case as a victory is completely surreal because obviously, you know, Alison Bailey's chambers has, I think, been publicly embarrassed and deservedly so for how it treated Alison Bailey. But also Stonewall is not in good standing at the moment. And that is partly mm. down to the heroic efforts of Alison Bailey and other people, uh, including some of the former founders of Stonewall, who are now speaking out against it and, and calling into question what you've described there, which is its turn away from defending the rights of same-sex attracted people towards this eccentric ideology which says you can choose your sex and you can be anything you want and a man can be a lesbian essentially have we now arrived at a situation where stonewall which is started life as a pro gay rights movement is now a homophobic movement even if it's accidental even if it's unwitting but if you find yourself in a situation where you are saying to gay men, there's a problem if you're only attracted to men. And if you're saying to lesbians in particular, there's a problem if you're only attracted to women. That is the kind of thing that used to be said by the homophobic tabloid press in the 1980s or Bible bashers and religious fundamentalists. It's now being said by Stonewall in kind of politically correct language. So it's, has Stonewall really reached the moment now where it's completely transgressed its original origins and has become something very, very different. Absolutely. I think it's a bit like the Tavistock. I think it's unrescuable. So in 2015 was when it added the T to LGB. Yeah. And since then, everybody who disagreed has left. Their former CEO, um, Ruth Hunt was her name, yes. Um, when she re resigned, I happened to know that the executive search was extremely difficult to replace her. And I know a gay man, a rather prominent gay man who was approached by the the executive search team. 
and you know he's very sympathetic to my ideas and he said he told me afterwards that he said to them is there any flex on the trans thing and they said no none at all and then it took them 18 months to find somebody that had an interim ceo and now nancy kelly is there and i mean she actually used the phrase sexual racism yeah for lesbians who you know, she, she literally likens it to that. She's likened um, gender critical women like myself to anti-Semites. Yeah. She's a lesbian woman. She's a married lesbian woman. You'd think she'd know better than this. Mm-hmm. But in her utterances and in her impact and in her organization's impact, I think it's just a, a matter of simple fact that the result is homophobia. I don't think it's intended to be. I think that's what it is though. So, I mean, I would personally be very glad to see the back of Stonewall the same way that we're seeing the back of the Tavistock. But of course, then it's what comes next. They're not the only organisation that offer terrible training to employers that's going to get the employers sued. They're not the only one that go into schools and teach children nonsense, Mm. put bad ideas in their heads and make them uncomfortable with themselves. So I see them as like, um, you know, once, once bindweed has taken root in your garden and it's everywhere, you can't just chop off the top of it. You've got yeah. to go right down and get out all the roots. So we need a real thoroughgoing clean out in institutions. And that's going to take time. Some bits you could do quite quickly, like if the DFE would stand up and say, you know, no more of this indoctrination in schools, um, back to having single sex toilets, no boys and girls sports. You could see it happening, but teachers would resist. But anyway, you just have to lay down the law. You'd have to change it in sport. You'd have to stop doing this very ideological healthcare. But most of all, what you'd need is you need employers to have the fear of God put in them yeah. by a bunch more cases like this. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you saw, there was a first instance employment tribunal case in Sheffield at a hospital trust there a week or two ago. Incredibly, a trans woman, so a bloke, was told when he started working there that he could use the women's changing rooms and he took to using it without his clothes on. And the women were told beforehand that they would not be allowed to complain and that if they did, they'd be disciplined. Wow. Uh, and then there was a there was a major case taken by this bloke, um, like on lots and lots of grounds. I can't remember all of it, but anyway, and um, the hospital trust was found to have discriminated against him by allowing people to complain. And in the judgment, what it said was, "We think that if a cisgender woman—that's their stupid expression for a non-transgender woman, i.e., a real woman—if a cisgender woman had taken her clothes off in the changing rooms, nobody would have objected." I mean, again, no shit, Sherlock. You know, I just can't believe I'm having to say these stupid sentences. So yes, that was that was framed as discrimination. Yeah. So yeah, we're just going to have to go and have you know, that. That has just not got to stand. That was in the first instance, so it doesn't set a precedent. But all around the place, there are miseducated judges making these silly decisions on the basis, as far as I can tell, of just words. Like if you say this man is a woman, okay, of course, you can go into the women's changing rooms. The material reality is he's a man. Yeah. And that's why he can't go into the women's changing rooms. Yeah. But the language has everyone so confused that I think it's going to take a long time to clean up. But yes, getting rid of Stonewall would be a good start. That brings me on nicely to a question I wanted to ask you about material reality, which you discuss a great deal in your in your book, which people should read, and language and the the kind of shifting apart of those two things over the past few years. And you describe there the fact that if we accept that a man can be a woman, literally a woman, trans women are women, as the mantra goes, then it makes sense that he should be allowed into a woman's changing room, into domestic violence shelters, into women's prisons and so on. And I remember the case of the LA spa in America, where a man was found to be wandering around in a woman's changing area in a state of arousal, according to reports, according to the women who saw him. And I, I wrote at the time that this is increasingly like a flasher's rights movement. This is, this is essentially the right of men to undress themselves in front of women and girls. One of the people who saw him was a girl. And it is pretty extraordinary. But this brings me to one of the points I've arrived at over the past couple of years, and I've been influenced in this in part by Kelly J. Keene, who I had m- numerous discussions with over the past few years about pronoun use. And she told me off many years ago for using preferred pronouns. And her argument was that if you adopt that language, then you are really settling into the warping of material reality by those who think they control can control how we think, how we speak, and how we express ourselves. So you mentioned earlier about the problem of on social media, you cannot say that Leah Thomas is a man. By the way, you are perfectly at liberty to say that on this podcast. And that's a real problem, isn't it? If you cannot use the right language to describe things and to call things out and to say how the world is, 
then we will go further down this route of warping reality itself. So it's quite important, isn't it, that we don't use preferred pronouns and that we do use the language that is appropriate to the person and the situation we're talking about. Yeah, I've moved a long way on pronouns too. And I suspect that Kelly would have given out to me the same way she did to you (laughs) at the same time. I have a huge respect for her. I try not to be authoritarian in any way. So I have friends who do want to use preferred pronouns, in particular for Mm -hmm. trans people who are not transgressing other people's boundaries, are not trying to force themselves into places they shouldn't be. Unless I have to, I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's not exactly because of the reality warping nature of things, though that absolutely is an issue. You know, when we call men women and when we use she for them, it obviously radically confuses people like judges and politicians. You see this and things like that Sheffield ruling. The judge genuinely lost track of the fact that this person was a man <laughs> because there was a woman's name and she and the whole thing was talked about she throughout, you know? Yeah. I've been thinking about this long enough that I can just about hold it straight in my head, but my objection to the preferred pronouns is a little bit different. Have you ever come across a thing called the Stroop effect? No. Okay, so it's it's a well-known psychological effect whereby you print words that are color names like B L U E Y E L L O W in the wrong color. And the thing is that we we read the word more readily than we name the color of the of the text. And so you have two things going on. You can see that the word yellow is there, but it's written in say red. And you ask someone to read all these words and to say the color of the actual text as fast as they can and they're so much slower than if they're just given black text and the words. And so it's interference. So if I have to put together an argument as to why Leah Thomas shouldn't be in women's races or why that bloke shouldn't be in that changing room and that Sheffield Hospital Trust, or, you know, why you shouldn't talk about trans girls going into the girls' changing rooms in school, and I have to use that language and I have to use those pronouns, there's a whole extra cognitive load as I'm trying to remember who's male and who's female here. And also, you know, I mean, I I don't know if listeners noticed, but I sort of, as I came up to talking about Grace Lavery, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to use in the way of pronouns. (laughs) And I did slow down as I sort of thought like, you know, am I going to keep going Grace, 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 Grace the whole way through, which is what lawyers tell me that they have to do if they're arguing in court. Like if you're not willing to call the trans woman, she, you're just going to use the name over and over again, but it's very unnatural. It's a massive cognitive load. Yeah. Right. Helen, my final question is about the the witch's coven that you were part of, which was the lunch with JK Rowling, which caused a huge storm uh, because women getting together to talk about things is problematic, apparently. And I wanted to ask you about that in relation to This notion that the UK is turf island, which is said as an insult, but I actually think it's something very positive and suggests that there is something, uh, there is a critical mindedness and a willingness to push back in this country against some of the excesses of the trans movement and some of the more eccentric ideologies that we see coming out of that. But do you think that the groups like that one that gathered at that lunch and obviously the broader movement, I would say, of women in particular, and also lots of men who are offering solidarity. Do you think that that has been the decisive factor, hasn't it, in relation to shifting a lot of this stuff? And if you and others hadn't done that, we might not be talking about the Tavistock closing down. We might not be talking about Alison Bailey winning her case. And we might not be talking about the broader questioning of why women's spaces are being invaded by men and why education is going down an eccentric road in relation to gender identity and so on. So doesn't that demonstrate that it really is worth putting one's neck on the line sometimes, as you and uh, JK Rowling and others have done, in order to turn things around, improve society and make sure that these dangerous ideologies cannot get too much of a grip on how we live? I wish I could remember it. There's a famous quote um, about social movements, which is something like, um, uh, never doubt that a small group of determined people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that that ever has. Mm. So I would say um, every time we've had a social movement or a social progress, it does start with a few people. So I'm old enough to remember when gay men didn't come out. I'm in my 50s. Mm. And when you look back In the 1970s, you know, gay men did start to come out. And then in the 1980s, there was the AIDS crisis. And of course, that was devastating for gay men. But funnily enough, it did actually encourage some of the survivors to come out because there's a sort of, I've nothing left to lose Mm. and a fury and, 
you know, a, a, a sort of feeling you can't keep under the radar anymore when your group is being slaughtered. And then in the 1990s, it continued. But it's what each person makes it easier for the next. It's a very, it's very like an avalanche, the early stages of an avalanche. So I think people can look now and think, gosh, how's this all coming so suddenly now? But actually, there have been people working, not me, by the way, I was a real latecomer in about 2018, but there have been people fighting against this since the 1990s, mm. as some lesbian groups in particular noticed it first, because it was they who were infiltrated and attacked first. And so just those few people, and each person makes it easier for the next. And to mix my metaphors, so alongside the avalanche, you know, the process whereby um, dry or wasteland, arid land becomes fertile mm. is a sort of a binding by, by grass and weeds first. And each little grass seedling holds together a bit of soil and stops the erosion a bit more. And in the end, actually, you've got proper land and it yeah. starts to become fertile. So it's a bit like that. I sort of feel like each each one of us women, and as you say, some men, kind of you know, causes a little cluster that's easier to defend against attack. Like on your own, it's very hard. And each person who says something publicly makes it easier to say something publicly. So I talk in a much more straightforward way now than I did in 2019 or 2020, or even last year when my book came out. I've thought more through what I believe and I'm clearer and happier in my own language. And I know that makes it easier for other women, but they're the ones who are making it easier for me too. And the reason it's happening here in Britain, I think, um, well, lots of reasons, but one reason is just kind of we're the right size. Like Ireland's a bit small. There's too few women yeah. who are able to meet in yeah. Dublin. I've met some of them, but it's not enough. America's too big. They mm. can't all get together. Britain's the right size. It's got some good laws, which America hasn't, and Ireland definitely doesn't have now. We've gone gender self-ID. And we've got the NHS, which means there's one point to attack the healthcare bullshit. Mm. Whereas poor old America, I mean, with their... Their healthcare, you know, it's just gone completely insane. This is the latest way that doctors can fill their boots. So yeah, we've got this sort of a set of factors, but each of us is making it easier for the rest. And J.K. Rowling has made it easier more than anybody else. She's been the person who did that. Helen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.